0: Reading short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep Darwinian Pool Room by Isaac Asimov. This is first published in Galaxy, October 1950. A little story about four guys sitting around a laboratory having a conversation. And nothing else yeah. happens. <laughs> um, it's a science fiction story, though I guess it, it I reminds agree. it reminds me a lot of you know, just talking with uh, people who are studying things. Um, the plot is a, is the conversation is rather odd, uh, but I think this is a sort of a sub genre of um, of uh, something maybe Lord Dunsany sort of kicked off with. Um, is Jorkin's Tales. Uh, I think Asimov picked it up um, with his Tales of the White Heart, and Arthur C. Clarke has one. Maybe it's Arthur C. Clarke's Tales of the White Heart. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, Asimov has Black Widow, Black Boot Widowers Club. But basically, there are stories about people sitting around having conversations that... it's it, Maybe it's just another narrative format for telling a story. You know, <laughs> I think
1: this this narrative format goes back a lot further. Hmm. Tell me. I think that a story in which basically you're watching people talk to each other mm-hmm. and in which one of them is asked questions and he replies to each questioner. These are the Socratic dialogues of Plato. Good point, good point. And in fact, one of the most famous of those is called Symposium. Mm-hmm. And our word Symposium comes from the the Latin for drinking party. Mm-hmm. And this story begins um, with our main guy um, coming in and having coffee. And the four of them are sitting around in the lab having coffee. It is literally a drinking party. Yeah, I I, I think there's something very interesting to note about the, the development of the Socratic dialogue that I'd like to say now, mm-hmm. and then something else when we're done talking about what's in the story to begin with.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I should... Just, go ahead. In context, um, I'm thinking about like... Uh, This is I I, I just realized this. This is the first issue of Galaxy, which is I think a very important magazine. Um, The uh, the format of Galaxy is I think kind of a a response to the format of Astounding, or maybe not the format, the um, the ethos (laughs) of Astounding. Um, John W. Campbell's famous for as the editor of Astounding. H.L. Gold is the editor of Galaxy at this time. And uh, he picked a great list of... Uh, I mean, there isn't a non-famous author in this. Clifford C. Uh, Theodore Sturgeon, Catherine McLean, Richard Matheson, Fritz Leiber, Frederick Brown, and Isaac Asimov. This is the last story in, in the issue. And um, uh, I hadn't thought of it before, but this is probably a story that couldn't be published as easily anyways in astounding. And, uh, and that might be because it, it is such an odd format for science fiction, but it's not an odd fi- format for storytelling as you're pointing out. Um, and, and philosophizing, which is really what the symposium is, right? It's philosophy. Oh yes. So that's what we got. But Plato, here.
1: Indeed. Plato had, uh, another reason for it though. I think, um, in one of the dialogues, uh, and they're all written by Plato, but they are—they um, all have a character sometimes called the Stranger, that's in Theaetetus, that dialogue called Theaetetus, sometimes just called Socrates. They always have a character who gets asked questions mm-hmm. and he answers, and the story is is that. But in one of those dialogues, uh, a story is told that the Egyptians believed, an Egyptian king believed that writing was going to be a terrible yeah. um, scourge on humanity because when once you have writing, uh, there are two problems. First, you'll no longer develop your own memory, so you will have less in your head. Uh, your intellectual and mental resources will diminish because you won't work so hard at keeping them up. Mm-hmm. The second is that, if people communicate via writing, they can't interrogate each other.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, it's Plato who lays out this argument, but he lays it out in a dialogue. I think what Plato is trying to do in the development of the dialogues in every bit of his work, for example, The Republic, which we think of sort of as a novel or a philosophical treatise, every bit of his work is dialogic. Mm -hmm. I think what Plato is trying to do is create a form that feels like human interrogation because of the real significance of conversation in developing truth.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that's what, in fact, I think Asimov is doing here in Darwinian pool room. I think you're right.
0: I think um, we should have a conversation about it, this dialogue, <laughs> um, but I'd like you to perform it for us, if you will, <laughs> and then okay. uh, we'll have an interrogation.
1: Well, let's start out by reading the beginning, because I think it's a terrific beginning. It shows Asimov's real, uh, his real craftsmanship as a writer. Mm-hmm. Of course the ordinary conception of Genesis 1 is all wrong, I said. Take a pool room, for instance. The other three mentally took a pool room. We were sitting in broken-down swivel chairs in Dr. Trotter's laboratory, but it was no trick at all for them to convert the lab benches into pool tables, the tall ring stands into cues, the reagent bottles into billiard balls, and then wait for me to do something with the imaginary layout. Thetier, or Thetier, I don't know, I'd give it a French or English pronunciation. Thetier even raised one finger, closed his eyes, and muttered softly, pool room. Trotter, as usual, said nothing at all, but nursed his second cup of coffee. The coffee also, as usual, was horrible, but then I was the newcomer to the group and had not yet calloused my gastric lining. Now, before I go on. So let's take a look at this. I love
0: this.
1: (laughs) Genesis 1. If you happen to be up on what in 1950 was recent and significant biblical scholarship, you would know that Genesis, as we know it, for example, in the King James Bible, is divided into Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We get two tellings of the story of the fall, for example, even in the King James Bible. And biblical scholars sort of try to tease out the text of Genesis, and they call them Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. This is Asimov trusting his readers. It's also Asimov suggesting that the people involved in this conversation are smart. They're smart. Now, there's a joke here. Take a pool room, for example. The other three mentally took a pool room. Now, you don't expect that phrase to take a blankety blank to be used in what looks to be a literal meaning but in fact they do so there's a joke being played here with the language you can understand how these people can easily turn from one conception of the laboratory to another because they were sitting in broken down swivel chairs there's so much going on underneath this Dr. Trotter's laboratory they're just sort of amiably going on from one thought to another as do pool cues that raised his finger or that raised his one finger pool room he said and we're told that this fellow the speaker is the youngest of them all this is absolutely typical of science fiction where it is the youngster who says oh but if i had a time machine <laughs> i could go back and invest everything in interest and then race ahead and be rich right it's always the youth so what we have here is a beautiful beautiful setup now consider the end of a game of pool cue i said uh, excuse me of pocket pool i said You've got each ball except the cue ball, of course, in a given pocket. Wait a while, said Thetier, always the purest. It doesn't matter which pocket. And then they go on. So with this really stylistically, I think, very, very dense, yet easy to read and engaging uh, story uh, opening. What we have is a symposium, a dialogue uh, in which our speaker suggests that there, in fact, is a divine intelligence behind creation. It's an argument for creationism. And that we don't think it's true has to do with one thing or another, uh, the improbability of um, Comets falling down from the sky and wiping out the dinosaurs, for example. In 1950, that was thought of as improbable. Now we, in fact, believe that's exactly what happened with a comet that blasted into or a meteor that blasted into what's now the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, So there, there are some things here that scientifically no longer ring true. It mentions that the Earth is two billion years old, whereas now we think of it as four and a half billion years old. But within the constraints of the science of its time, each of the people says, well, what about this? And the speaker comes, well, you could take care of it this way. What about that? And you come back so that we wind up with a a logically unassailable argument that, in fact, there was an act of creation and that act of creation was intended to create human beings and so we are the highest of all and that evolution has now stopped because for the first time there are creatures on the earth who can understand evolution the principle that was set in motion by the creator understand evolution and Take a hand in it, can stop it from letting themselves be superseded, can keep from further development, can stay just as we are. And sitting here in my uh, house, uh, Jesse, talking to you through uh, the Internet, wearing glasses uh, with a hip implant and fillings in my teeth. I can't help but wonder if, you know, we've done a lot to keep us just as we are. Trotter got up. This is the end of the story. He had finished his coffee but was still nursing his cup. All right then, you say we've hit a dead end. But what if all this has been taken into the original account? The creator was prepared to spend 300 million years letting the dinosaurs develop something or other that would eventually result in mankind, or so you say. Why can't he have figured out a way in which man could use his intelligence and his control of the environment to prepare the next stage of the game. That might be the a very tricky part of the pool game. That stopped me. How do you mean? Trotter smiled at me. Oh, I was just thinking that it might not be entirely coincidence that a new race may be coming and an old one going entirely through the efforts of this cerebral mechanism he tapped his temple in what way stop me if i'm wrong but aren't the sciences of nucleonics and cybernetics reaching simultaneous peaks aren't we inventing hydrogen bombs and thinking machines at the same time is that coincidence or part of the divine purpose that was about all for that lunch hour? It had begun as logic chopping just to kill time, but since then, I've been wondering
0: i uh I like the opening as well. I think there's some really as you pointed out, there's some really fun language um the taking the pool room as a a phrase and then they actually take it as in they start visualizing it. It just takes them a minute. And then in the illustration above, we see the four men standing around the hypothetical pool table that doesn't exist and calculating reality as a series of balls hitting each other, um, atoms in collision, planets, uh, formation, uh, gravity. It's a nice metaphor. But then that uh, funny visualization continues in the very next column um, where it says, "Um, Pool room Trotter, as usual, said nothing at all, but nursed his second cup of coffee. The coffee, also as usual, was horrible. So (laughs) we've got the as usual, as usual, coffee, coffee, in a nice little parallel. It's like the sound of those balls hitting each other. Um, This is all comfortable. And these guys are all used to it. Uh, we, as we learned at the very end, um, it's a what a logic chop sec- a session, which is obviously uh, a BS session, is what usually I think I've heard people call it, or a late night uh, uh, sitting around philosophy sec- session. Um, it's a way to kill time and a way to express a little idea. And our characters, there's four of them. Um, I've got their. Names written down, which is... I I think there's something to, to their names. I'm not 100% sure what they all mean. Maddened. Um, and uh, in the UK, they would pronounce that Mad-end, I would think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thetier, uh, he was the purist. And then Dr. Trotter, uh, whose laboratory it is. Um, and to trot is to walk, uh, in a certain way. So... As you point out, the narrator is the youngest, or at least he's the newest to this, I would assume, university or high school, something like that. They're on their lunch break. They're just shooting the breeze. Uh, But it turns out um, that at the end, they are maybe not under the theory that the narrator, the me of the story is uh, hoping to pass uh, to these guys as a possible theory for reality. Um, but they, it turns out that they might still be the balls in play um, rather than taking control of of creation. So that we are the... Uh, this is a, sort of a common, uh, as you pointed out, this is a creationist sort of argument. Um, we are the point of the creation of the universe, so... The fact that dinosaurs exist in the fossil record doesn't matter to us because that was just to get to us, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But, of course, as is happening in 1950 when this story is published, um, atomic energy and atomic bombs and computers are both developing at the same time. Uh, A few years go by and we get a novel (laughs) by... um, uh not a famous writer uh called Colossus, the four-bin four project, which is about what happens when you build that ultimate commuter, computer and you've got all this threat of ultimate uh, uh nuclear war. Well, you want to put it in safer hands, right? And then, right. of course, this is also something Asimov deals with all the time, is is robots. They're here to serve us, but they better have laws applied to them. Otherwise, Dot dot dot. So we've got a kind of um, BS session, which is the way you would maybe make a sh- uh, normally a, a short story, a science fiction short story. A bunch of uh, writers sitting around a room talking about SF style ideas, which is basically science and technology and, and tracking history to see how the development all comes. But um, it ends with that. Since then. I've been wondering,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, that's that's pretty great. That's pretty great. There, there's a number of um, of lines that make me think it, it, like it almost. It's almost like this may have even happened. Um, there's a line on page one fifty six. Uh, no, of course not. They died out naturally and of necessity, according to the original precalculation. This is all supposition, right? Whoever the initial pool player was, and the metaphor that's developed right is we see the results of the balls all being in the pockets, but we don't know the rules of the game. Um, but we have some tools um, in order to make good guesses, perhaps towards w- what, what what is elegant, what is beautiful, <laughs> maybe in play. Um, but yeah, uh, we develop along. Um, the various conversation back and forth and then on page 158 we get to what um, sorry no, never mind I'll, I'll i
1: just wanted to point out just before what you read mm-hmm. um, asimov is is doing this but he's also very engaged with his own time so just before that uh, that once they had served their purpose they were gotten rid of right that's where no of course not you picked up with that but in between it says how in a properly arranged Velikovsky catastrophe, a striking comet, the finger of God. In 1950, Emanuel Velikovsky's Worlds in Collision
0: mm-hmm.
1: was, in fact, an enormous bestseller. It was. And part of what Asimov is doing here is trying to debunk the idea that creationism has to depend upon coming up with all sorts of uh, reliance on myth and over-readings of this and that, um, like the Nazca Plains and so on. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a very fine thing that Asimov is giving a, what he hopes to present as a scientifically sophisticated argument against most creationists, but in fact, to entertain the
0: possibility of creationism. hmm
1: Sorry. Um, no, no. Worries. Just didn't want to miss costume
0: there yeah that that book actually shows up um in a, a very strange scene in uh a mud bath scene in uh invasion of the body snatchers the 1978 um which it it, it was it was around when the first novel was turned into a, uh, the novel was first turned into movie but was not um was not the bestseller that it became. It it, it it is like Chariots of the Gods, a kind of mind worm that got into people's brains and became hugely popular and s- still has echoes today. Um, uh, and that same mind worm, I think, was in science fiction in a slightly different form um, in terms of uh, John W. Campbell. Um, so there I, I mentioned uh Uh, analog, AKA astounding Um, earlier that book Mm -hmm. or that magazine edited by John W. Campbell has a kind of bent towards um, a pseudoscience we would say today, but uh, perhaps something more resembling the borderlands of science then. Um, And I want to read this section from page one fifty-eight because I think it is a refutation of John W. Campbell's favorite premise. Um, What about man himself, developing into a sort of Superman and displacing the old-timers, suggested Thetier. Not likely, I said. The only part of the human being which is worth anything, as far as being boss of the world is concerned, is his nervous system, the cerebral hemispheres of the brain in particular. They are the most specialized part of of his organism, and therefore a dead end. (laughs) If there is anything... The course of evolution demonstrates it is that once a certain degree of specialization sets in, uh, flexibility is lost. Further development can proceed only uh, in greater specia- specialization. And this also reminds me of Heinlein's uh, famous line, uh, specialization is for insects. Um, <laughs> uh, because he says you, <laughs> you ought to be a generalist and be able to write a novel in the afternoon, chop wood, fly an airplane... Navigate a starship, <laughs> big long list, right? Um, it's a long afternoon. It is a long afternoon. Um, what's what's and uh, there's something in here, not in this section, about uh, maybe in the next section about uh, neuroses and how how this is a, a common problem today, um, <laughs> because of of the de- development of our brains, and that same fear is what eventually gives us. Uh, a novel like Colossus the Forbin project which is about the fear of a crazy person deciding to end it all by pressing the send the nukes now button so we put it into the logical hands of a, of a creature or a being that has no emotional problems aka a, a computer and then we'll all be safe safe from our own, problem uh, our own brain problems um of course <laughs> that's the point of the end of this story is that um if you are developing a uh, a theory of humans are the end product the only proof that that is true is that you look down into the future at the end of history at the end of the universe and there was nothing else developed right It's very convenient uh, for theologians to say, you know, this is uh, how things are going to be on this date. And they pick a date in the future. Uh, We are all going to ascend bodily into heaven on January 25th, 2021. Right. Oh, wait, that was two days ago. Um, (laughs) uh, My calculations were slightly off in 2029. It's, I got it right this time, <laughs> but right. uh, but that's the that's kind of the problem in science is there is no one thing we know for sure that can't be revised, and so as we're a part of this ex- experiment that some prime mover started uh, billions of years ago, maybe two billion in, in the 1950s, four and a half billion uh, today, and maybe twenty billion in. 30 years, we'll never know, or we will know in 30 years, maybe, then you can only look back and say, oh, mm, made a little mistake uh, calculations-wise. Um, this is why I, I got it wrong. And uh, that is what I like about this story. It's it's designed to humble the, the theory maker by him testing it against other theoreticians, saying, what's wrong with my theory here? And he's got a bunch of answers, but then mm, that niggling little problem creates... This is what we call in the process of uh, the study of uh, science and philosophy, or philosophy of science. This is called um, not normal science. This is uh, marginal science, or the science of uh, paradigms. Changing what you think are the parameters for understanding reality. It's a, it's a fun fun. Thank you. It's a sorry. fun story and it's a fun exercise, but it's actually how it actually works too. This is how people I, I, decide where the funding is going to go.
1: I think you're right. I think that is a powerful part of the story. There are a couple of other things, though, that that bear exactly on that. How do we do the the theorizing that are in here? And this presents to me a problem. You know, having read a lot of Asimov, and I'm sure you have, too. Mm -hmm. I know you have. um, One of the things that typically displeases me about Asimov's writing is that once he puts a clever thing out there that the alert reader can get, Three pages later, he explains it in case you weren't an alert reader. <laughs> and and that, that annoys me. I, I, I hate him wasting my time as an alert reader on explaining something to me that I was supposed to have great joy in discovering for myself. Because mm-hmm. I don't have joy in having somebody repeat it. Now, here, the section you just read, The the only part of a human being worth anything is the nervous system, the cerebral hemispheres in the brain. They are the most specialized part. If there is anything the course of evolution demonstrates, it is that once a certain degree of specialization sets in, flexibility is lost. No, that is not true. (laughs) That is an argument from analogy that some people make, but all you have to do is recognize that cephalopods, not not cephalopods, that cetaceans are land animals that manage to go back into the water and that what had started as fins and became quadrupedal limbs could then return to being fins. It gives the lie to this. (laughs) Evolution, if you approach it in, the, in an honest, non-theological way. Evolution doesn't know what is more or less specialized. It doesn't say that something can't change once it's gotten to be quite appropriate for a particular niche. This is wrong. <laughs> the narrator is, the, the chief interlocutor is wrong. And what I don't know, this is the reading problem for me, is this Asimov giving me the chance To realize that even this arguer is wrong because, let's face it, creationism is wrong and Asimov doesn't believe in it? Or is it a mistake with Asimov just trying to create the possibility for creationism? And I really don't know. One of the reasons I don't know is because as I read this story in 2021, it's obvious to me from, you know, like the third page that, of course, we could be supplanted by artificial intelligences But in 1950, maybe Asimov actually Mm -hmm. expected that to be a surprise ending. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But one thing I do know is this. Whether or not he intended any of the things I question, what he produced at the end of his symposium was his Socratic figure, rather than being triumphant in his wisdom, actually willing to keep wondering. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, Asimov is Aristotelian and is, in fact, much more of a scientist than Plato ever was. This is a development of the Platonic dialogue, and I, for one, admire and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. In a way, I think what he's saying to us is Plato seems to have fixed the form, but it could evolve. There is always more to say.
0: Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.